If you got a Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 2. Uh, we'll be in Mark 2, 18 to 3, 6 this morning is where we're going to be. If you don't have a copy of it in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me as we read it together. But beginning in Mark chapter 2, in verse 18, we find these words. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came and said to him, said to Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into new wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, He and those who were with him, how they entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Now, some of you have had this experience, probably like me in the past, where you walk into the doors of a restaurant and you sit around the table and the waiter or waitress, the server, will come up and ask you what you would like to drink. And so you peruse the menu and you determine what soft drinks they might have. Now, some of you are like, I don't... I don't drink soft drinks, right? Uh, I only drink water um, or tea. But you peruse the soft drinks. Just imagine with me for a moment that you actually drink soft drinks. And so you peruse the soft drinks and you notice they have Coke products. And so you order a Diet Coke, right? Because you're trying to watch calories. I don't want all that sugar coming into your body. Right? So you order a Diet Coke and then the waitress goes back to the back. She draws up the drinks and brings them out to the table and sets the, this bubbly brown beverage in front of you and with a straw in it and you begin to take a sip of that straw and as soon as you take a sip of that straw you go whoa right you're just kind of taken back because what you recognize very quickly is that the waitress did not bring you a diet coke but she brought you a real coke right she brought you the one with sugar whole sugar and nothing but the sugar okay it's all sugar and so it just it just leaves you like your mouth puckering because it's been so long since you've had the taste of real sugar in your mouth because you've just constantly consumed diet beverages, right? right? I mean, you recognize that the taste of this real stuff is, 
that's pretty strong, right? It kind of recoil at it to some degree. Now listen, whatever the merits of diet soft drinks may be, okay, one reality is true that whenever you've been drinking diet soft drinks for an extended period of time and you actually take a sip of the real stuff with cane sugar imported from somewhere down south, right, you get a Dublin Dr. Pepper instead of a diet Dr. Pepper, all of a sudden there's just this, it's like an overwhelming taste to your mouth, so much so that you might recoil at it because the real stuff hits your tongue it's hard to palate it at first when all you've been accustomed to is diet sugar-free sodas and listen the same thing is true with christianity church when all you've tasted all of your life has been a diet version of the real stuff when the real stuff hits your tongue it becomes hard to palate insofar as you might even recoil from it whenever you first encounter it Listen, diet Christianity is rampant within the American culture in the modern church. Diet Christianity consists of basically a general abstract belief that there is a God, that Jesus has some good things to say about life, some good principles that He might teach us, right? That it's good to go to church, it's good to be a good, upstanding, law-abiding citizen and teach your children to do the same so long as it doesn't conflict with other things you've got going on or the demands of your schedule. That's diet Christianity. But when real Christianity hits your tongue, oftentimes those who've had nothing but a taste of a watered-down diet version, they recoil at it. They recoil at it. And in our text this morning, I want, you to, I, want, I want to show this to you. Jesus says that if you want to follow Him, listen, it's not enough to continue to give yourself to a diet version, but you must embrace the real Jesus. We've been looking in Mark's Gospel over the course of the last several months together, looking at the real Jesus, who He was, His identity, who Mark presents Him to be. And Jesus says, if you're going to come after Me, if you're going to follow Me, then what you must do is learn that you cannot merely add Me to your life, but you must adjust your life to Me. There's a difference between those two mentalities. Right? See, diet Christianity wants to take Jesus and just import Him into our life, add Him to everything else we've already got going on. It's kind of like embracing a new hobby. Like, I want to learn badminton or basket weaving, and so I just go out and I take a class, and I learn how to do these things, and I add it to my schedule. But Jesus says what real Christianity is, is not the addition of me to your life, but rather it's the adjustment of your life to me, to who I am, to where I'm going, and to what I'm calling you to. Jesus says that's real, authentic Christianity. It's not addition of me to your life, but the adjustment of all of life to me. Okay, so it's not like adding a new hobby to your life, but it's like finding a new fixed center for your life and everything else revolves around Him. And that's what Mark is trying to present to us through these three stories that we read this morning. He's trying to show us that Jesus didn't merely come to reform religious practices. Right? Listen, He didn't merely come to reform religious practices, but He came to replace them with Himself. To replace religious structures and systems with Himself and to say, listen, I am better. I am better than all the structures that you have created, man-made religion. All that's hollow without me. All of that is shallow without the substance of who I am, Jesus says. Without me at the center of your life, you can engage in all the religious practices you would like. 
and yet still find yourself longing and tired and weary. And so this morning, as we take a look at what Mark has to say to us, we want to see, first of all, that what Jesus says, if you're going to have an authentic relationship with an authentic God, real Christianity, not diet Christianity, but the real stuff, is that Jesus requires a complete reorientation of your life. A complete reorientation of your life. Now listen, in verses 18 to 22, when Jesus shows up on the scene, He says that His arrival calls for two things. One, for celebration. Two, for reorientation. Look, in verse, in, when people ask Jesus in verse 18 why the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, okay, so they're denying themselves the pleasures of a meal on particular given days that have been set into place. They said, why are they fasting it? Your disciples refuse to fast. Jesus tells them a parable. He says, listen, when you go to a wedding and the bridegroom is there, and the festivities are rolling. He says, you don't go to a wedding expecting to fast, you go to a wedding expecting to feast. That's what you do at a wedding whenever the bride and the groom are present. When the bridegroom is in the room, you don't fast, you celebrate and you feast alongside of them. When the bridegroom is taken from you, he says, he says, in that day, my disciples, they will fast, but while I am in their midst, they are feasting, they're rejoicing, and they are celebrating. But Jesus says not only is his arrival a cause for celebration, but for reorientation, because he goes on in verses 21 and 22 to tell two more parables. And they're at the center of what I want us to see this morning in this text. In verses 21 and 22, Jesus tells these two parables. First, he says that no one takes an unshrunk piece of cloth and sews it into an old garment to patch a hole. He says, here's why. Because that old garment has been worn and washed and worn and washed and worn and washed. And as a result, you and I know that Unless it's synthetic fibers that didn't exist back then, all right? It was man-made, right? it, was, it was these natural fibers that they were wearing. And natural fibers had a tendency to do what whenever they were worn and washed? Shrink. You know the reality, right? You buy the large shirt that's 100% cotton and you wash it and you're like, my kid can wear this tomorrow, okay? Because it just shrinks down. Okay, that's what natural fibers do. And Jesus says, listen, you don't take an unshrunk piece of cloth. He says, if you're going to patch it, you've got to shrink it down first. You've got you to wash it and let it dry and wash it and let it dry so it shrinks. But he says, you don't take this unshrunk piece of cloth and sew it to a garment that has a hole in it because what's going to happen is this. That old garment is already shrunk and it's brittle. It doesn't have any more elasticity in it. And as that new patch begins to shrink, it's going to eventually rip away from the seams and create a larger tear in the garment than what existed previously. But he tells them a second parable as well. He says, you don't take new wine and place it in old wineskins. He says, old wineskins as well have lost their elasticity. They're, 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 they've dried up. They're more brittle now. And the new wine that has not yet fully fermented, as it ferments, is going to release some gases and it's going to build pressure. And what's eventually going to happen is because that leather in that wineskin has no room to expand any further, it's going to burst and the wine's going to spill out. It's going to be ruined. The wineskin's going to be ruined. Everything's going to be ruined. It's going to erupt. And Jesus says, listen, you don't take, he tells those two parables to tell us something about himself. What Jesus is saying is this, if you try to add something new to something old, 
or fill something old with something new, then in either result, he says, it's going to be disastrous. It's either going to create a larger tear than what existed to begin with, or it's going to rupture all together because the new cannot be contained by the old. Jesus is essentially saying this to us, church. What he's saying is that you cannot add me to your life, to all of your structures, to all of your systems, to all of your schedules. You cannot just take me and try to press me into what you've already got going on. He says, rather, what you need to do is adjust all of what you've got going on to me. Reorient all of your life, a complete reorientation of your life around me. Now, you might be asking yourself the question as much as the religious leaders of their day were asking probably the same question. Where does Jesus get off saying something like that? Right? Who is he to say that? I'm glad you asked that question. You guys are real perceptive this morning. Listen, here's, here's why Jesus has the authority to say that. Look in verse 28 of the text. Look at who Jesus understands himself to be. Jesus, listen, the, the heightened sense of his self-awareness and consciousness of who he was it blows your mind as you read throughout the Gospels when he says things like this. He says, listen, I continue, keep sending to you prophets and teachers. He didn't say, I'm one of the prophets and teachers that's been sent, but I've been sending them to you. Here in this particular text, he says, he calls himself the Son of Man in verse 28. Now, that, that, that phrase, many of us look at that and go, well, Jesus isn't saying he's the Son of God. He says he's the Son of Man. He's just another human being like us. Not if you understand the Old Testament. And listen, those in his day, they would have known the Old Testament backwards and forwards. They would have known Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has a vision. And he sees the Ancient of Days, God the Father, seated upon the throne. And he sees one like a son of man approaching the Ancient of Days, God the Son coming before him and bowing. And he sees the Ancient of Days bestowing upon the Son of Man all authority, all power, all dominion, and all rule over all creation. And so when Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, He's not concealing His identity. What He's doing is He's putting it front and center, putting it on center stage for everyone within earshot to understand exactly who He believed Himself to be. That he was the one who had power, authority, dominion, and rule over all creation. And so Jesus says, because I am who I am, you, just, you can't just squeeze me into what you've already got going on, but you've got to adjust what you've already got going on to me. You've got to reorient your life around me. And so what that means for you and I is that we, if, if we're going to be followers of Jesus, if we're going to respond rightly to Him, we've got, we've got to reorient our life around Him. Now listen, every life-altering transition requires reorientation, doesn't it? Listen, I remember whenever I graduated high school and I moved off to college. Hmm. Several things I noticed very quickly. First of all, the state of Louisiana, I was in Louisiana. The state of Louisiana didn't care if I went to class anymore. Okay? <laughs> They weren't going to come after my parents for not putting me in school or bringing me to school. Second of all, my parents were not there waking me up every morning at 7 a.m. to make sure I got to my 8 o'clock class on campus. As a result, uh, yeah, I'm not gonna, I won't say out loud what actually transpired because I don't want to give any of you who are about to be in that season of life any ideas. But 
needless to say, I missed a lot of 8 a.m. classes. Right? There was no longer home-cooked meals. And so I blew up a lot of Taco Bell in my days in college, okay? And it had some adverse effects upon me as well. Right? So there was a reorientation of learning responsibility, of learning how to adjust to that new reality that I found myself in. Right? Whenever I graduated college and went into the workforce, there was a reorientation now because my boss actually cared if I showed up at 8 a.m., right? Whereas my professor didn't. Okay, whenever I got married, whew, right, there was a reorientation to life. This new reality now of no longer having merely myself to be concerned about, but there was someone else alongside of me. And I thought that I had I'd, I'd dealt with the selflessness of my heart until I had children. And then all of a sudden, children come onto the scene, and there was a reorientation to that new reality of life. See, every, and then, and then I, can, I can imagine when my wife and I are a little bit older, and we're empty nesters, there's going to be a change then too, a reorientation to that new reality. Every major transition that you go through in life requires an adjustment, a reorientation. So why would we assume that the greatest adjustment, the greatest change, the greatest transition to go from death to life, from darkness to light, from despair to hope, from a life filled with self-exaltation to now a life filled with a Godward exaltation of wanting to glorify Him instead of ourselves. Why would that not also require a complete reorientation of our life around Jesus? who is the Son of Man, who has all authority, all power, all dominion, and all rule. Right? Now listen, this reorientation, we could talk about a lot of things this morning that it, that it requires in our lives. Let me give you one of them. Right? If your life is going to be reoriented around Jesus, your life's going to be adjusted to Him, not, him at, not you adding Him to yours. Right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to require... That you relinquish the right to live however you please. It's a pretty broad one, but let me get real specific with it for a moment this morning. Philip Ryken, a commentator, said it this way. He said, many people say they want to follow Jesus, but instead of leaving everything behind, they try to take it all with them. They call themselves Christians, but they are not willing to give up their selfish ambitions, their sinful pleasures, comfortable surroundings, bitter grudges. Precious idols are simply the right to live the way they want to live. Listen, one of the ways you know that you're not reorienting your life around Jesus, you're not adjusting to Him, but trying to add Him to you, is by looking at what you rejoice in and what you recoil from in the Bible. What you receive in the Scriptures and what you reject. See, one of the ways to know that you've just added Jesus to your life is if Jesus conveniently affirms everything that you affirm. <laughs> and Jesus conveniently rejects everything that you reject. Right, you think about some, several things, that hard sayings of Jesus, things that, he, that were called to in the Scriptures. So you might receive what the Bible says about caring for the poor, because I love to care for the poor. The poor are in need. We should rally people to take care of those needs, to address those needs, to show up in those moments, to be present to eradicate poverty 
and injustice. And yet you might reject what the Bible says about human sexuality. Or you might receive what the Bible says about speaking graciously. Because we want to be kind and tolerant and open, but we reject what the Bible says about speaking truthfully. Or we might receive what the Bible says about loving our neighbor, but we reject what the Bible says about being yoked to an unbeliever. Right? We might receive some of these things, rejoice in some of these things, but we recoil at others. You receive what the Bible says about extending grace, but you reject what the Bible says about exercising discipline. Or the other way around, you are a champion for discipline. But when it comes to extending grace, right, you're finishing last place every single time. Or you receive what the Bible says about saving, right? Even the ant puts it away. But you reject what the Bible says about giving. Because I've got to hang on to what I've got. See, if there, if, if there are things about the Bible that make you recoil from it and reject it, it could be that you've just taken Jesus and tried to add him to what you've already got going on rather than entering into this lifelong experience of following him in which you're constantly adjusting all of life to Jesus and to his discipleship, pursuing after him, being formed into his image. Right? Now listen. What Jesus says is this. Is every, every religious structure, every religious system, you can, you can go to synagogue. He said to us, you can go to church. You can give. You can tithe. You can be a part of a small group. You can do all these things without ever really reorienting your life around me, because what you've done is you just embraced religious structures and systems without embracing the one who fills those things with substance. Dick Lucas was a pastor in England um, many, many years ago, and he contrasted the difference between the pagan religions and Christianity. And listen to what he says. He says, you can imagine perhaps on the streets of Rome back in, uh, back in the day, Okay, back in the early days of Christianity, you might have a Christian who is living next door to a pagan, and they like standing over the fence and strike up a, up a conversation, right? Like privacy fence, you know, that's there. Didn't have those back then, I don't think. But right, they're standing at the at the boundary line, and they're talking about religion. They're talking about um, re- religious things, and so you can imagine the Christian talking to their pagan neighbor, and the pagan neighbor says, "Oh, I hear you're a Christian. That's great. We got a new religion. I love religions. All the pageantry and the practices and the rituals, right? So where's your temple?" And the Christian says, "Well, we we don't have temples because Jesus is our temple. He's fulfilled the need for a temple." Oh, says the neighbor. So where do your priests do their thing? Oh, well, every religion's got priests, right? Where do your priests do? Oh, we don't have any priests because Jesus is our priest. He's our mediator. He's the one who stands in our place before God. Oh, well, okay. Well, where do you offer your sacrifices? Every, every good religion has sacrifices to offer, right? You've got to appease the gods. You've got to make right with them. You've got to make sure that you're on their good side constantly. You have rituals to do. The Christian responds, we don't sacrifice anymore because Jesus is our sacrifice. To which the neighbor responds finally, like, well, what kind of religion is this? To which the Christian says, it's really no kind of religion at all because every other religion says, if you do all this stuff, you'll be accepted. But Christianity says, because you've been accepted by God through faith in Jesus Christ, you then do all this stuff. 
See, Jesus says, I'll tear down essentially all the man-made, hollow, shallow religious structures and I will fill them with myself. Like, have you just embraced a life of religious practice, a life of religious structures? I go to a small group, I come to church, read my Bible, but missed the substance of the person of Christ, the Son of Man who has all dominion. Are you adjusting your life to Him at every step of the journey? Are you following Him? Or are you saying, listen, I've got a good thing going and I can just add Him to my life like another hobby? Which one best describes your experience with God to this point? Now listen. Jesus says that human religion and tradition cannot mesh with or contain me. That every structure is a hollow shell without me. And then he gives us a case in point. The Sabbath. The Sabbath. See, the two other stories in this text this morning speak of the Sabbath that God had instituted at the time of creation. And what Jesus is going to say is this. He says, listen. We take what you experience, the structure that you have, and tell you that I am the deep rest that your soul needs. Jesus says He is the source of rest for our souls. Because listen, what Jesus says here about the Sabbath, He doesn't say the Sabbath was made for Jews, or the Sabbath was made for my followers. Who does He say the Sabbath was made for? For man. Humanity. Humankind. Right? That's what he says. It was a rhythm laid out in creation for the health of hum- humankind. Right? And so the Sabbath, God did all of his work in six days. On the seventh, he did what? He rested from all of his work, from all of his labor. So there's a rhythm of six on, one off. Six on, one off. Six on, one off. Right? Rhythms make things beautiful in life, don't they? The only way music is beautiful is because there is a rhythm to it. If there was no rhythm, it would just be noise. You know what I'm saying? Right? There's got to be upbeats and downbeats. If there's no rhythm, it's just noise. But because there's rhythm, there's beauty. And the same is true in life. If your life has no rhythm to it, of rest and labor and rest and labor, then your life is out of control and it's very, very noisy. But it is not beautiful. And so God institutes the Sabbath at creation. For the sake of mankind, you have to rest from your work. And Jesus affirms this principle of the Sabbath. He says it's good, it's true, it is right. He affirms it over and over again, but he consistently, here's what he does, he tramples on the legalism surrounding the Sabbath. He says, I'm exploding all the legalistic controls and constraints that you have placed on the Sabbath because you've missed its intention. And this is exactly what he says in verse 27 of chapter 2. It's his whole point whenever he makes that statement, the Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. See, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, they took the Sabbath and most of the other moral law, and they said, here is the crowning jewel of God's creation. It's the Sabbath. Right? The Sabbath is so good. The Sabbath is so great that God now must make people to abide by it. Right? 
That's how they treated the Sabbath. All the regulations and all the traditions. As if it was the pinnacle of God's creation. And then God looked back and go, man, that is so good. What am I going to do with that thing? Oh, i got to make people then to abide by all the regulations. But Jesus says that's not how it works. He says it wasn't the Sabbath that was made for a man that was made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for men. In other words, the crowning jewel of God's creation is not the Sabbath, is not God's moral law, but it is male and female created in the image and likeness of God. And then God says, how am I going to protect, heal, restore, replenish what I've made in my image? How are they going to flourish? They need boundaries to flourish in. And so God gives the law, including the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was always intended to be a time for rest. But not just rest from your labor, but a time to be replenished, a time to be repaired, and a time to be restored. That's what God institutes the Sabbath for. And yet the Pharisees, you might say, they, they missed the proverbial forest for the trees spiritually in the way that they practiced the Sabbath. Right? Which is why Jesus, in chapter 3, in verse 4, he gets so angered and grieved by the Pharisees because there's a man there whose hand is shriveled and withered. Okay? And Jesus brings this man up before them and he says, Which is lawful? They were all like, like watchful eyes, like binoculars, telescopes, focusing on Jesus' every move, his every intent, every thought, because they wanted to catch him in something. And so Jesus brings this guy up and he says, hey, you, you don't need to catch me in secret. I'll do it right here in front of your face. <laughs> and he asked him this question, which is, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To heal or to kill? To do good or to do evil? It's like crickets. No one says anything. Silence. And Jesus, we're told, is angered and grieved by the hardness of their hearts. Because Jesus says, listen, I have come to fulfill what the Sabbath was intended to do, to repair, to replenish, and to restore all that has fallen, exhausted, and broken. And you are so concerned about the regulations and the boundaries that you set up around God's intention in the beginning to repair, replenish, and restore that you're more concerned whether or not I would restore this man's hand, which is what the Sabbath was intended to be a picture of. You're more concerned whether or not I would restore his hand than keep your regulation. You're more concerned about your regulation being kept than this man being restored. And it says after Jesus restores his hand, they go off and they begin to plot with. Right? You, listen, if you want to know what's going on in the text, it's like Republican and Democratic senators now working together in order to bring somebody else down. That's what's happening in the text. Right? you got the blue states and the red states coming together, banding together in order to bring somebody down. And you got the Pharisees and the Herodians, polar opposites on all policies and procedures, now working together to destroy Jesus. Because Jesus says, I'm Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus doesn't, says he can't be contained by the old skin. He's going to tear apart that old garment. He says, I've come to repair and to restore. And he says, listen, it's not because the Sabbath is unnecessary, but because of the way they had treated it was abusive. 
and controlling. So Jesus says, find rest for your souls in me. Come to me and find rest. Notice what he says. He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I'm Lord over the Sabbath. He doesn't say, I'm the one who created the Sabbath, but I am Lord of the Sabbath. You know what Sabbath means? It literally refers to this deep rest. A deep rest. And Jesus says, I'm the Lord of deep rest. I'm the source of deep rest. I'm the one that you need to come to to find deep rest. That was merely a structure or a system put in place to point to me who would be a Sabbath for your souls. That you could find deep rest in me. See, what the Sabbath pointed to can only be fully realized in me, Jesus says. The one day a week you got rest was just a reflection of the deep, divine rest of God that you were designed to enjoy. If you think I'm making too much out of that, if you go to Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says to a people who are weighed down by the Pharisees and scribes' interpretation of the law, He says, come to me, those of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. will give you rest. If you're weighed down by the way they understand the law and all of its regulations and all the minuscule scruples that they have, come to me. Come to me. Because my yoke, my interpretation, my understanding of the law is easy. My burden is light. You'll find rest for your souls with me. Jesus says, I'm the source of the rest. Now listen, if you want to understand more about what the Bible says about work and rest, go back and listen to our our Ten Commandments series earlier this spring when I preached on the Sabbath. You can find more of that there. This morning what I want you to see is that there are essentially this. There's a physical rest and a soul rest that we need. You have to rest from your labors. Otherwise, you will burn yourself out. But listen, what you need even more than that is to rest from the work that's underneath all of your work. Let me tell you what I mean by that this morning. See, apart from Jesus, apart from Jesus, you can take all the vacations in the world to all the exotic destinations you want to travel to and never find rest. Because all of us, apart from Jesus, have a work underneath the work that's going on in our lives. We're all trying to prove ourselves. We're trying to prove ourselves to God. We're trying to prove ourselves to other people. And we're trying to prove ourselves, guess who? ourselves I'm worth something I'm valuable I have meaning I have purpose there's a reason that I exist and if you've lived long enough what you've come to discover is this is that over the course of your life that's the natural default that you will slide back into over and over and over and over and over again of trying to prove yourself. And you know what? It's going to manifest itself in different ways, in different seasons. When you're young, you tried to prove yourself by being successful at academics and athletics. As you got older, you tried to prove yourself through your vocation or through your marriage. As you aged, you tried to prove yourself through how well your children did in their pursuits in life. Or the kind of car that you drove or the house that you lived in. You try to prove yourself. Try to justify your existence. Because there's always this nagging sense of, I cannot put it away. I cannot walk away. No matter how many vacations you took, you never found rest for your soul if you weren't resting in Jesus. See, in creation, whenever God made the world, 
It says, on the seventh day, he rested. Now, let me ask you a question. Was God tired? <laughs> Did God just exhaust himself by speaking everything into existence? No. God is not limited like we're limited. He's not finite like we're finite. God did not grow weary or tired in his work of creation. So for God to rest, what does that mean? It means that he stepped back and he looked at everything that he made and he said it was what? It was good. He was satisfied with it so he could put it down. He could walk away. And listen, if we are not finding our rest in Jesus, we will never find that kind of rest where we're able to set down our work and walk away and be satisfied with it and be able to say it is good. It is finished. I'm done. Because there's always going to be something else to do to prove ourselves. To impress other people. Listen, one of the greatest illustrations I've seen of this is in the movie The Chariots of Fire. Familiar with that story. It tells the story of these two Olympic athletes, and they're both competing for an Olympic medal. Right? You got one who is a Christian and one who is not. You got Harold Abrams and you got Eric Liddell. Liddell was a Christian, Abrams is not. Right? And Liddell actually misses out on a chance to win the Olympic gold medal because the race was held on a Sunday and he refused to race because he was going to practice Sabbath and take the day. And so he loses out on that opportunity. But listen, throughout the story, so it's, it's, it's kind of a commentary on several different levels about what it means to, to find rest. But there is one at this deeper level of rest that is constantly eludes Abrams that Liddell is able to find. Because Abrams says this in the movie. At one point in the movie, he makes the statement. He runs the 100-meter dash. And, and in, in that race, right, it's about 9 or 10 seconds long. Unless you're Usain Bolt, and it's like 9.3 or whatever the world record is, Okay. But listen, he makes this statement. He says, when that gun goes off, I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. I've got 10 seconds to prove that there's a reason that I'm on this earth. I've got 10 seconds to prove to everyone else and to myself, to all those around me, that my life is worth something. And so you know what? No matter where Abrams goes to rest, he cannot find rest. He's always Exhausted. And yet Liddell makes this statement, a very contrasting statement in the movie. Liddell tells his sister at one point, he says he wants to please the God who has believed, he believes already is approved of him. That's why he says to his sister, he says, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. See, there's a difference between those two statements of I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence and God made me fast and when I run, I feel His pleasure. See, for those who are living to prove themselves, you will always say, I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. This proposal, this pitch, this project, this position. But to those who are resting in the finished work of Jesus. They can say, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel His pleasure, whether you're fast or not. <laughs> and no matter what you do and how God's gifted you and you exercise those things, you're not trying to prove anything to Him, anything to yourself, or anything to anybody else, because you know there's approval already rests on you because of what Jesus has done for you, not what you're doing for Him. See, those are two 
polar opposite ways of living life. Either by being good enough, that you can somehow impress God, or by believing the gospel, the good news, that there is no one who is good enough, and Jesus has been good enough for you. See, what your heart really needs is not just, not just a day a week to rest. But what your heart really needs is to rest from that work of trying to prove yourself that's under all your other labors. And you can only find that in Jesus. You can't find that by adding him to your life. You can only find that by adjusting all of your life to this new reality that he has brought. So find rest for your souls in him, church. See, whenever God said, it is good. He was satisfied in what he was done. So he rested from his labor. Whenever Jesus says at the cross, it is finished. You know what? He said that so you and I can rest from all of our labors. He's done enough. You don't have to add anything to it. So reorient your life around who he is. Don't just embrace a few Religious structures in your life. Don't just add a few things to your schedule. But listen, adjust everything, all of life, to who He is and what He's done. And what you will find is that what He says is true. Is that He is, a, he is Lord of the Sabbath. He's the source of all the rest that you need. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You today. that you've shown us so clearly through your word that our lives are not an ever-ending race in which we're trying to run faster and harder than those who are next to us so that we can somehow impress you more than they do to be accepted by you. But God, you've already accepted us through the person and work of your son. There's nothing we can add to that, nothing we can take away from it. And I pray that that truth, it would explode our lives. Not just be something that we try to sow into our lives, or not just this new reality that we try and pour into our old shells of ourselves. We would find a new identity in Jesus. We'd find that we are new creations in Christ. That the old has gone, the new has come that we would find rest for our souls as we reorient our lives around Jesus, as we believe what is true about Him and what is true about us in Him, that He is better than all of our practices, that what we get in Him is better than all of the structures of religion. Because we now have a Savior, we have a person at the center of our life, a fixed point in the midst of all the other things that are changing around us. Help us to reorient our lives to that new reality and in so doing, find rest for our souls. Father, I pray there are folks in the room this morning who as they look back on their lives realize that all they've ever done is try to add Jesus to what they've already got going on. 
So they always found church to be frustrating. They always found uh, the, 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 the Bible to be, to, to, for them to be recoiling at things and not receiving it and rejoicing in it. Father, I pray that you would break through the diet version of Christianity that they've been operating with. And Father, even though it might cause an overwhelming taste upon their palate initially, God, that you would bring real, authentic relationship with yourself through your Son into their life today. You'd be gracious to save them. begin to adjust everything. And find that that's where life, that's where joy, that's where hope, that's where peace that they've always heard everyone else talking about is found. It's not found in embracing a few additional routines. But it's found in this vital relationship. Pray in Jesus' name.